This episode of Little Bit of Life is sponsored by one of my great friends and such an incredible company, and I am so excited to share it with each and every one of you. It's called Bella Sante Health, and they create customized and the finest CBD products out there on the market. I struggled with anxiety, I struggled with sleep insomnia, and pretty much everything and anything in between when we talk about mental health, and that's what today's episode is going to be about. And with this company, Bellasante Health, they use 99.9% pure hemp isolate grown in Colorado. And with less than 0.3% THC, their CBD products are legal in all 50 states. They do an incredible opportunity in regards to giving you a free consultation. So you can give them a call at any time. Let them know what you're struggling with, whether it be anxiety, depression, sleep, insomnia, weight loss, or any form of medical issues that you just need some assistance for. I take their CBD products. I take an oil every morning and every night, as well as my dogs. They use all of their CBD products. And also she makes incredible customized CBD skincare. And I always try and remind people, everything that you use on the outside of your body does go inside the body and it will affect you. So please make sure you check them out at bellasantehealth.com and make sure you contact them for your free consultation today. Welcome to Little Bit of Life podcast with your host, Tabitha, better known as Little. A lot of you may know her from social media, but Little is shown off the apps. Dedicated to having the real, raw, and occasional chats about what we seem to think, but don't say. Special guests will join in along the way that have impacted her in a profound way. Very little is left off limits, so sit back, enjoy, and here's your host. Welcome into another episode of Little Bit of Life podcast. I am your host, Tabitha, better known as Little on social media. Today we're talking about a topic that is extremely close to my heart. We always talk about mental health and we're also focusing on mental health with men. It's something that so many in the community don't talk about. We always think men are supposed to be the providers, the protectors, the strong ones, those that never really talk about their feelings and their struggles. And especially we are focusing on the law enforcement community today, the men in the uniform that serve and protect. But what happens when that uniform comes off? What happens when they go from being the police officer, from being the law enforcement, and being that person in the community that we all look up to. And they go home to real life with their partners, their spouses, their children, their support system, and their families. What happens when they look around and actually visualize and see the things that many of us will never see in a lifetime? How does this affect them? How does this impact them? I have an amazing host on with me today. You know him very well. He's on TikTok, K9Cash, with over 467,000 followers and 4.2 million likes. That's just unbelievable to me. We follow everything in regards to Canine Cash, the Narcotics Patrol Canine in Georgia. And they're there for positivity. They're also there to share their videos with both the law enforcement officer and the canine. But they're bringing a little bit of glimpse today into what mental health looks like, especially in the law enforcement community. The reason I'm doing this episode, especially today, to end the month of September, is September is the month of suicide awareness prevention. Now, we always think with suicide, it leads to depression. It leads with all of these other mental health illnesses. But I bet you didn't know that over 25% of suicide comes from the law enforcement community. Sit and really reflect on that number. It's just incredible to me. 
With that, I also want to give an amazing shout out and attention to a company out there called Copline before we get started with today's episode. It's the International Law Enforcement Officers Hotline. It is the hotline that is made for officers. As their motto states, cops understand cops. We've been exposed to similar situations in our career, whether you're active duty or retired, and feel like no one understands what you're going through. We want to answer your call. Copline has earned the trust of the law enforcement community, and they provide peer listening through a hotline by maintaining complete confidentiality if the caller chooses. They train competent, confident, committed, and compassionate retired officers to engage with callers on the daily stressors officers and their families experience. So if you're one of our listeners today that is in the law enforcement community or you have someone within that law enforcement community family that may just need a little bit of help or a bigger support system available, make sure you contact them at 1-800-COPLINE. That is 1-800-267-5463. Let's get started with K9 Cash, our amazing guest today. And I really hope today helps you in one way, shape, or another. Hey guys, welcome into another episode. A little bit of Life Podcast with Little. As I said in the intro, we have an amazing guest. It is K9 Cash, as you know him from TikTok, social media platforms, and everywhere and anywhere in between. How is it going? I am so honored to have you on today. We're good. Thank you. How are you? Doing good. Look at those ears sitting back there. He's ready to get to work. Oh yeah. Yeah. He knows it's all about him. (laughs) Well, as I said earlier in the intro, we are discussing not only for September towards the end of the month, Suicide Awareness Month, but we're also talking about mental health and the impact that it has on men, especially in the community of law enforcement. I feel like this is something that needs to be discussed and talked about and really brought to the forefront for people to not only feel comfortable to talk about it, but also help be a support system for those who need it. So with this episode today, um, so many do not focus on mental health and allowing them to speak about it only because for especially those that their job is in uniform, um, it's something that it's pretty much made to make the person feel that it's a weakness. It's something that's just part of the job. So with you, especially with being presented on TikTok, what got you started on TikTok? So it, uh, let's see, I guess it was about two two years ago now, it was, it was something, we were in a social media contest on Facebook for Cash to Win Canine of the Year, and we had, we, we had really good success with that, he won, but then I was like, everybody been bugging me to do TikTok, do TikTok, and I got tired of getting TikTok videos from people and their dogs and all these canines, and I'm like, we can do that, um, it kind of blew up overnight, more than we expected, it's done so many great things. We use our platform to to help shelter dogs, to raise money for uh, families with kids who need help. Um, so, I mean, it's become a great platform to do what we already do, but just do it on a much more grand scale. Um, I never thought that we'd be up to 460 some odd thousand followers. Like, it's still mind boggling to us. Um, but you know, it also would help me meet my girlfriend. So that works too. With being an officer, so many look at it as such a rewarding job, which it is, um, but it can also be mentally taxing. So with every call and every assignment, um, everyone is, has that possibility of witnessing something that can be very disturbing. And it's something that sticks with officers in more ways than one that many would not think of. Um, suicide calls, domestic violence, officer involved shootings, and much more. It can just be a regular part of the job. 
And according to Walden University, police officers are reported as the highest rate of depression and anxiety, PTSD, and almost 25% of officers in the survey have experienced suicidal tendencies at least once in their lifetime. Why do you think this is truly an issue that's not spoken about, not only by officers, but also just with the Blue Line community? So it's a multi-pronged thing. I think you have the type of personalities that get into law enforcement. They're, they're pretty much the strong, silent types most of the time. So a lot of it is they handle their own stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is then the added pressure from the department. It's the, the peer thing. It's not looking weak in front of your peers. It's also the sometimes you just don't have time to even process your own stuff. So it it is. It's a multi-pronged thing. And speaking from personal experience, I've been policing Christmas will be 19 years. And you don't even realize what the job does to you until it's already done it to you. And you're looking up and you're like, how the hell did I get here? Um, especially with this, um, with this fact, and even when you sit and really think about it, um, it's really massive and it has a lot of magnitude behind it. More police officers die by suicide than in the actual line of duty. And when we say that and, and really realize what that means, like you said, you don't really realize what the job does to you until it's already been done. And this also affects your support. System. When you take the uniform off, when you go home, you automatically, most often, because I was raised in a law enforcement family, you start to take the problems home with you, but you really internalize those without realizing that you're shutting that wall off. You're keeping that boundary up between you and your support system. A lot of times people think they won't understand because they just don't have experience or you just don't want to burden them with the problems. You try and leave the job at the job, but most often than not, that's not really necessarily what happens. Right. So have you had like experience with this within your career in regards to realizing, like you said, much later that it really affected you? And then how did you kind of embrace that on your own? By the time that I realized that my job had affected me, I was probably five, six years into my career. Um, I hated everybody, honestly. (laughs) It, you get a very jaded look when what may be in a given area, 10, 5, 10% of the population, that's your 100%. Your 100% is this same group of like 200 knuckleheads that you just always deal with and it's always negativity. It's always BS because you always see people at their worst. And so you get a real jaded outlook on the world. It becomes commonplace to you because your friends group is all cops. And then in my personal experience, I I looked up one day and I'm like, I hate everything. Nothing's positive. Like, I always see the downside to everything. And then I ended up in a shooting. And so that takes on a whole nother level of, uh, of mental toll to you. I worked through that. The department I worked for at the time did a horrendous job of any type of mental health anything there was no hey go see a psychiatrist none of that it was like hey uh we'll see you back tomorrow at six and i'm like okay so i started researching it on my own um 
and I actually was in the process of changing jobs. I went to my new department. It was November of 09, February of 2010. I responded to my lieutenant being shot and killed. So here we go piling the next mental, I don't even know how to describe it. Like you, the things you see, see, smell, taste, doing this job are things that nobody's meant to see. The things that we see on TV, we're like, ah, it's good. I've seen it before. No, 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 no. So different in real life. And you don't, you don't share that with people. And when you do, you share it with other cops that you feel comfortable with, whether they may be, that may be the healthy person to share it with, or it may be the jaded cop that you share it with because you know he's going to take the negative outlook that you're already in the mindset of. So it, it takes some intestinal fortitude to, to go forward and really take care of your, your own mental health. Because the department after that incident when my lieutenant was killed, they, they had the best intentions in the world, but they brought in faith-based counseling. It's extremely hard for police officers to sometimes reconcile their faith with what they do for work. It's also hard for them to reconcile it with some of the things they see. So you bring in a faith-based counselor and you have a hard time sitting there telling the, the preacher what's going through your head because it's not at all godly. Again, it was their best intentions, but we, we were kind of stranded on this island of how do you how do you deal with this? This department literally had been in existence for maybe a year. It was a new city, new department. Nobody knew what was going on. And you look at police departments and think, hey, they're the ones out here protecting us. They've got it all together. The department I work for now, yes, that's true. The department I worked for then, not so much. And it's just, it's a matter of resources. And they don't, most departments... Most of your outlying departments outside of metro areas have very little resources. They run on a very small budget. They focus and they go, 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 go. There is no time to stop and think, you know, it's always go. Where I work now, we have a peer support team. We have people that are trained to help their fellow officers through crisis, to recognize their fellow officers that may be in crisis, how to start those conversations, how to have those conversations, the warning signs, the things that you know that you need to step forward and say, but they also know they can be confidential with you. It's because cops normally will only talk to cops. For me, after my lieutenant was killed, I, I sought out um, therapy but I sought it in a very specific and deliberate manner from somebody that used to be a first responder, somebody that I felt could relate. In my case, I was fortunate and I, I processed it, I understood it, I didn't, I knew that there was something wrong with me. I had an idea of what it was because I've always been a, a, a big proponent of keeping your mind sharp and mental health and law enforcement and things like that. But I, I came into this at 19 years old in 2003 and I had this whole new school look on things is where the people I worked with not so much I surrounded myself with good people and luckily it got me to where I was and I didn't have a problem looking for help when I felt like I needed it I can't tell you how many people I've known in this profession that have killed themselves it's it's something now 
more than ever it's looked upon with less of a stigma than it has before. It's finally being recognized as a line of duty death and, and things of that nature, but it departments, again, you're more, the closer you are to a metro area, it seems, the more that they embrace that and they, they care about it and they realize mentally sharp officers don't get us in as much trouble as non-mentally sharp officers. So they, they have started to take a very large role in the mental health, but I don't think that we'll ever be able to go far enough. Do you think they're starting to take notice for the mere fact of the actual increase in numbers that it's happening to? Or do you actually think that it's being, like you said, it's not so much of a, of a negative stigma anymore. Do you think that that might be the cause of it? Especially because with the increase of suicides, it mostly comes from, I mean, statistics show it comes from smaller departments. So do you think it's because of the increase in numbers or even the possibility of budget cuts and everything like that? What do you feel is like the main reason that's now starting to become more, not so much more accepted, but it's becoming more of something that they're willing to focus on and work with. So I think that mental health coming to the forefront in general society has helped to bring it to the forefront in law enforcement. Um, I also think that there were some smart leaders out there, um, probably into the what, 2009, 2010, around that time, you really started hearing about it. You really started seeing this new type of officer come in that you had your, your baby boomer generation had made it into, into leadership. They were starting to transition out. They were learning to manage millennials. And then you had millennials come into the leadership positions, which I think is where we started seeing this kind of hybrid thing where we realized that we can we can still go out, still do our jobs, but we also can take care of ourselves mentally and there's not there's not a stigma surrounding that. It's not just the rub some dirt on it, suck it up and move on type mentality. So I think it's a I think it's a combination of a bunch of things, but a lot of it I mean we in law enforcement we end up having to be reactive all the time. So when we hear in the general population that mental health, mental health, mental health, and then you start actually looking at statistics, and when you have leaders that that are willing to look at statistics and go, wow, you know, there's a problem. Yeah, you know, any given year between 100, 200 cops die in the line of duty, but when you drive it home, that it's double the number of that, at least, in suicides for police officers, it, it it really makes you think. I still don't think that we get a real true number of statistics when it comes to statistics on that. I mean, you look at, and it's sad, but this is the business that, that we're in. You look at... Um, how do I say this? You look at some of the the surroundings, the the events surrounding officers that are killed. You you get to know people in crisis. You get to see people in crisis when we go on these calls. There's there's this thing called suicide by cop. You know, a lot of people won't do it to themselves, but they know if they force the police's hand, 
that we have to do it to protect ourselves or somebody else. So if you carry that same thought forward, there's it would beg an interesting question. Nobody, I don't, I, I don't think anybody will ever know. But how many, how many of the line of duty deaths each year? And I'm sure it's a small number, but I, I think it's reasonable to say that there's some of these that these officers put themselves in certain positions that end up in the situation that they're in. It's going to be any cops listening to this will probably find that an unpopular opinion, but I, I challenge them to stop and think about it because what police officers do know is what any average person knows is if I, if I kill myself, my family doesn't get taken care of. My family's looked at different. There is no, no benefits. There is no nothing to take care of my family. Not to say that people are actively going out there and putting themselves in situations, but people in crisis do things that are completely irrational. So I think that the numbers are actually a lot higher than than studies will ever be able to capture. Yeah, I agree. With the rise of COVID-19, there was such an increase of suicide within law enforcement since the start of the pandemic. And obviously on this podcast, we talk about everything that people think, but they don't want to say. Um, in regards to the pandemic and everything coming up, there was a huge shift in regards to the respect level that people looked at police officers, law enforcement, first responders, and had the respect. Then there was a complete turnover of, you know, everyone rioting and going against the, every single police department, every single person in uniform first first responder. Do you think that that also was almost an increase or a rise in how law enforcement officers looked at situations after that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it it completely shifted the way that we do our jobs, not only from something as simple as getting people to sign traffic tickets to how you dealt with people on the streets it 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 completely took the community paradigm that we'd been working so hard to build up and it completely put a, a literal six foot social distance wall between us when we went on calls it put masks on us it put and it it made any contact we had very impersonable it made any contact that we had with our coworkers. we were supposed to stay far away from them so in an already desolate profession where you ride around 12 hours a night and you're in a car normally by yourself. And then you add in more isolation. It, um, there were days that everybody dreaded coming to work and it became, and I think the best term that I heard for it was pandemic fatigue. Everybody just got tired of it. They got tired of it. You know, we said, screw it. You know, if we get it, we get it. We're out here. I tend to think that we have a little bit higher immune system from some of the uh, the houses that we visit and some of the areas that we have to frequent on calls. Um, I'm like, if I can make it in there and not come out sick, I'll be okay. Um, I did end up getting corona, but it I, I weathered it. NyQuil was great, and I went on. But what we saw when the pandemic hit, I remember sitting at home. I was already quarantined um, right as the pandemic started. I was quarantined and then everything happened with George Floyd. And mm -hmm. then the, the events that that set off and the civil unrest that it set off in the country. So now you're dealing with the pandemic. And then as a police officer, you're dealing with the fact that everybody literally hates you because of what you do. There was a little bit of, you're already now on an island. 
you're now even further on an island because everybody seems to hate you. Every bit of the pandemic, the civil unrest, and has led to where we're at today, which is really a rebuilding phase. But I see us rebuilding in a better way than we were before. I do see that. I, do, I, I think, like now, we, like, at our department, like I said, we've got a peer support team. And we also have a very open line of there is no real stigma of there is no real stigma of hey you know i think so and so is having a hard time there's no ridicule or anything like that it's more these guys wrap their arms around their fellow officer and they say hey you good are you okay and people have gotten used to hearing it around here um but again we're in a progressive metro area as where coming from a rural area, you you're not asking nobody, uh, you're not asking another dude if they're okay. You're just gonna be like, ah, he's quiet tonight. He must be arguing with his wife. You know, it, it's just not the thing that you did there. And having not been there in a while, I'm still fairly certain that it's a lot like that still. Um, but I do. So I can speak from the standpoint of being in a metro progressive area. You do see a lot different standpoint on mental health issues these days. Um, we just recently had two deputies in our county killed. And we had our shift that was working that night. Our officers went, we had the whole shift went to the scene to assist them right after it happened. After that, our chaplain was involved. Our peer support team was involved. You had officers just organically checking on other officers to make sure if they were okay. So it, there have been leaps and bounds. I still think that we need to do more baseline training when it comes to the police academy to tell people, look, this is what PTSD is. This is what you need to expect because there's there's statistics out there that – the average person will experience like 2.8 traumatic events throughout their life. I don't know how you experience 0.8 of a traumatic event, but, you know, numbers. But it says the average police officer will experience something like 238 traumatic events. So when you think about that, I mean, I look back, and it doesn't seem like I've been in this 19 years. I look back and there's stuff that I don't even remember going to. I talk to people and they're like, hey, you remember when? And I have to really think about it. But the only time that I became that way was after I, I went to therapy and I learned how to cope with the traumas that I had dealt with and rectify my position in them and or my role in them and everything else. And then kind of say, OK, this is something that happened. But I'm going to put this on the shelf with I've, I've dealt with it. And if I need to pull it back out, I know where to unbox it. I know how to unbox it. I know how to deal with it. And I know how to package it back up and put it where it needs to go. Um, but that was only after therapy. And I I don't know where I'd be now if I, if I hadn't sought out the therapy when I did. I did a I did a poll on the webpage for the podcast and coming from a law enforcement family obviously it's a massive blue line community so I wanted to do a poll between two separate people within society one that were very familiar with the trauma and just the day-to-day -day life and the restrictions of just detaching from the job 
I also did the other half with people that were just on the outside, kind of similar to what you said. Hey, we've seen it on the news or we've seen TV or whatever media wants to present as the actual position. And it was very interesting because when I did the survey, everyone on the right side that had just had no experience or anything, they're like, well, it's just, it's just a city job. It's a city job. You have all the convenience, you have the benefits, they're paid for. So the big question on that side was why? Like, why don't you use it? But it was interesting because then when I presented that big question of why to the other side, um, there were different things that came up. But the main concern was um, concerns regarding confidentiality, especially in smaller departments. That was a huge concern and a huge issue. And most of it was they felt that any mental health professional that they associated with um, could not relate to those that were working within their department. They didn't understand. And then that kind of also led into families, because when we're talking about law enforcement, we're talking about mental health, it doesn't just affect the officers. It also affects your support system and your family at home. If you're married, it affects your spouse. It affects every single thing within your community. Do you have experience with your personal life and being comfortable or maybe in the past, like not understanding where you fit once you detach and leave the job and come home? I did. So I was married. I got married when I was 21 and, and she was a non-one dispatcher. It was a, it was a treat because you never really got away from the job. One of you was either working all the time and we worked at, at one time we worked in the same County. It was miserable. You never got away from the job. You found yourself, like I found myself many days just laying in bed, watching TV. I never got out of bed. It took me, it was hard for me to detach from that. I also lived in the same place I worked. Like, so everywhere I went, I saw reminders of work. I was never really off work. Um, once I left that area, my wife at the time left the area she was in. We then worked in separate areas. It got a little bit better, but the damage had already been done. You come home and when you can't get away from the job, you carry things into it. You carry things into your, your personal life and your, your personal community that, you know, just as something as simple as the way that you, you talk to people, you know, at work, you have to be an authoritarian figure in your house. Yes. Yeah, sometimes with your, with your children, you have to be an authoritarian figure, but you know, not with your spouse. That's not how it should be. And you do these things subconsciously. You don't realize you're doing it. And then they look at you and they go, don't talk to me like a perp on the street. And you're like, I'm not. And then that sparks a whole nother thing. And she's still at another, another agency. I become a police chief. So now you add in, we've had, we've had a line of duty death that I was the first car on the scene. I'm dealing with that. I roll into being the chief of the agency a couple years later everything that goes along with that, the stressors of my job coupled with the things that my wife was going through mentally with things that she had dealt with in her job. So here you have two, two people in public safety and it's like the perfect storm. So you've got traumatic event, traumatic event, traumatic event, and they collide and it becomes extremely volatile. There, it's no surprise that our relationship didn't make it through it. I mean, it's hard enough to handle one person who's in crisis, much less two people that are in crisis trying to help the other in crisis while they're in crisis. It's it's like this big tangled web. So 
it's no wonder that our relationship didn't make it through that. And we we both agreed amicably to go our separate ways. But then after that, I I actively sought out a partner that was not in law enforcement because or in any type of public safety, because I found that from 19 until 30, 31, I don't really ever remember living a personal life, like having where I hung it up when I left. And um, I just kind of went through the motions for 10, 12 years. I deliberately sought out somebody that was not in public safety. I started dating my girlfriend. She she was in finance. I'm like, this is great. She completely separate. And when I go home, I can completely I can completely step away. She she asks me how my day has been. I feel comfortable to talk to her about anything that I have that I might be a little bit unresolved about. And I don't feel like I'm being judged or looked upon differently because of my take on it, because we cops are extremely cynical and we're all a bunch of smart asses. I don't feel judged, but I also I see how fun having a personal life can be. So it's really helped me detach from what I do here. And when I go home, it just, I literally, I have an hour drive home. So I can, on the way home, it just kind of all melts off. And I think about, hey, I need to cut the grass tomorrow. Hey, we need to do this. We, we So we also, in the midst of all this, started a, uh, a working dog kennel. And so we, uh, we provide dogs to Customs and Border Patrol, police departments. So I get to do my, my love for canine with my partner. And so that's that's a cool thing that we get to do. And it's outside of doing all this. And doing that has really helped me realize that I do have an identity outside of being a police officer. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that finding an identity outside of the job, especially like you said, with the partner of finding someone that was completely separate, do you feel that that also was a huge piece of the puzzle in repairing your mental health from detaching? Absolutely. Absolutely. Detaching from it. It gave me like I used to not look forward to my off days. I'd be like, or if I did, it was because I was going to go do this one certain thing. And then it or it meant I was going to get to finally get some sleep. But I was always looking ready to go back, ready to go back. Now, I love my job. I love working with my dog. I love doing everything that I do. But on when I know it's time to go back the next day, I'm kind of like sad because I got to leave the house. I got to you know, I got to get back in the the grind of things. Honestly, it's made me a better cop. And it's also made me more cognizant about the risks that we take out here. I think twice before I do foolish stuff. I think twice before I go running into the woods after this person or that person. So I think not only has it made me safer, but it's gave me a lot more mental clarity as far as there is life outside of this. Um, to wrap this up, we have a lot of listeners um, that are really looking forward to this episode. And I'm not going to call anybody out, not going to call any names, but I know the reason why is because I think that this topic is the one that they need to hear and they have to hear. And I think it's finding accountability in yourself to realize, you know what, maybe I'm not the best version of myself that I could be and that I need to be. 
and then understanding that it doesn't make you more or less, especially with, with men's mental health. We, we look at men, we're always raised that way. You're the strong one, the protector, uh, whether you have a uniform on or not. And it's always something where if you show emotion or if you show anything, it's a form of weakness. And it's something as society, we need to talk about the stuff and really turn it around to make it more acceptable for anyone, especially men, to be able to say what they feel and work through it, whether it's with a support system, a therapist. Um, and there's a lot of listeners right now that are saying, you know, I don't need a therapist. I don't like therapy, which is fine. But any form of therapy can just be you simply talking to a friend, a stranger, a support system, your partner. It's always that one person that you're able to go to and talk openly and honestly. So if there's one thing that you could see change within the law enforcement when it comes to mental health, what would it be? Oh, um, I think it should be, I know you said one thing, but this is kind of a two-part thing for me. I think one, there needs, every department should be required to, and they should honestly take it upon themselves to post helpline numbers for, that are specific to police and provide these to their officers with technology the way it is these days. I mean, I've got our whole policy on an app on my phone. There's, there's sections to put this stuff. When I was a police chief, I didn't care if my guys talked to a therapist. One, I didn't want to know. But two, I'll help you find the number. Here's a number for an anonymous. This is completely anonymous. They're not going to talk to me no matter what you say. Just if you need it, you need it. And let them understand that. Look, it's here. It's posted 12 different places in the department. Call them if you need them. You can do it from the privacy of your patrol car, from your privacy of home, whatever. We don't want to know. We just want to know that you're okay. I think the department addressing it as a culture and just openly saying from the top down, you're going to deal with some messed up shit. And that's the only way I know to say it. You're going to deal with this and it's going to leave you feeling some type of way at a certain point. Deal with it. Deal with it this way. Deal with it that way. Do some every year in your in-service training mention, hey, we have these helpline numbers. If you if you need further resources and you want to talk to us, cool. If you don't, call them. It's anonymous. And something that we kind of piloted when I was a chief was every six months, we had a counselor that was available to our officers. You wanted to see them? Cool. If you didn't want to see them, that's fine too. But they're available. Just making it available and letting people know that there's no shame in it. There is no shame whatsoever in it, I think would go a very long way. To your point, normalizing it, telling people, and right now with so many people coming into law enforcement that are young, changing it from the beginning, because those are our future leaders. I mean, we have a crisis in law enforcement leadership right now, and who we're bringing in now and the people that are early in their careers, those are the leaders of the next 10, 20, 30 years, if they've heard it since the time that they came in, address it right there in the police academy. Look, you can see messed up shit. This is how you can deal with it. This is the things. These are the warning signs. But it's okay, and these are the resources, because there are a ton of law enforcement resources for mental health that are anonymous. And when you're calling, you're talking to guys and gals that have done the same job that you've done. And they understand where you're at. And sometimes when you deal with these traumatic situations, like when I lost my lieutenant, when I told the story for, for 
two, three years, when I'd tell the story of what happened, I had to tell the whole story. Like, I could not stop myself. I had to go through it painstaking detail by painstaking detail. Having been through that, I carry that when I'm talking to other officers, and I'm like, man, they're droning on and on, and I stop myself, and I go, you know what? You were that guy. They just need to get every detail out. And I tell them, hey, I'm here. Let it all out. Tell me whatever you want to tell me, man. I'm going to tell you I've been through it. I'm going to give you my perspective if you want it, or I'm just going to shut the hell up and listen. But other people that haven't been through it don't know that. And that's, again, where that training comes in. If we start now with all the people that are coming into it and we say resources, and these are some of the things that you may experience or you may see your fellow officers experience, this is how you can handle that. To your point, you can... Another officer can be their therapist, but don't hold it all in because it is going to crush you. It will destroy every bit of your life. You'll catch every bad habit that this this profession has to offer for you, and it'll chew you up and spit you out on the other end. I mentioned it in the intro as well as uh, we. this episode is sponsored by so many amazing companies. Um, Copline is the one that we really want to focus on. It's Cops Understanding Cops. All their information is in the bio. Um, they are available by phone. They're available to chat anytime you want. Simple as sending a text, the word home to 741741. It's very anonymous. They know exactly what you're going through. If we have anyone also that's listening who may be struggling, or you might know someone who's struggling, um, just so everyone is aware, the National Suicide Prevention Line, they have now changed to just a three-digit simple number. It's 988. You can always get a hold of them that way as well. And if you maybe are a family member and you just feel like maybe it's good for your family to go to therapy and you're not really sure where to go, um, we're also sponsored by Alma and their information's in the bio as well. For all the listeners, they're at, they're making it so easy. They're, you can access a directory in your area based on your zip code. You can even do it online. Your family can do it online or you can choose it in person. And they're allowing your first visit to be free completely for you, for your spouse, for your children, anyone and everyone that needs mental health. They're willing to reach out. So everything will be in the bio for every single person that maybe just wants to go online. If you feel you're not ready to talk to somebody, but maybe you just want to do a little bit of research, that's always the first step as well. And there's nothing wrong with that. All right. Well, I thank you for coming on. Hopefully you have a great rest of your shift and a great rest of your evening. And I thank you for your time and being so vulnerable and open and talking about this specific topic, because if anyone's going to relate, it's definitely going to be listeners and also LEOs that hear you and have gone maybe through what you have, or maybe they just feel, okay, now's the time. I heard it. Now's the time. I'll tell you, and if I can say this, any any specifically to law enforcement officers that are out there that are listening to this, if you think that you may need to talk to somebody, you probably do. It's not a slight. It's not a dig. I'm just telling you from my experience, when I thought in my head I may need to talk to somebody, it was six, six eight months until I actually did. I wish I would have done it sooner. And number two... If you're a cop out there and you just don't you don't want to talk like that with the guys and gals that you're around, we're on social media. Hit me up. I'll talk to you all day long. I don't even have to know your name. I would much rather spend three hours in one night talking to somebody. We're here. That's all I'm saying. We're here.
Well, I appreciate it so much. Your information as well is in the bio, both your TikTok and your Instagram. And like you said, you can reach out to anyone that you feel comfortable. Everything is anonymous. Everything that's listed in the bio, uh, we definitely would not steer you wrong. And again, thank you so much for your time. And it's greatly appreciated. Thank you. Have a great night. This is Little signing off. Thank you for listening. I'll see you for the next episode. And thank you so much to all of our sponsors. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Little Bit of Life. Don't forget to rate, review, and follow on your favorite platform. And interact with the podcast Facebook as well as on Instagram at littlecute1az. We'll see you next time.